Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Welcome to Epiphany's Podcast, a ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. For more information about our church, you can visit epiphanyligonier.org. You know, revenge is among the oldest, if it's not the oldest, desire that human beings have. I mean, you can read about it in the ancient literature manuscripts of papyrus that are kept in vacuum storage to preserve them at highly guarded museum vaults. You can read about revenge there. Um, And you can read about a good revenge story on the app TikTok, the latest of the hip social media apps that I guess nobody in this congregation actually uses. You know, revenge is a universal desire. When we are wronged, we want to settle the score. And this is why the Count of Monte Cristo is such a beloved work of literature. The story of Edmund Dantes is one of the stories of revenge through the ages, right? Do you remember the story from grade school uh, when you read the Count of Monte Cristo? Maybe not grade school, high school more likely. Um, Edmund Dantes was the up-and-coming merchant, and he was due to get married, and his status was on the rise when two vagabonds, a couple of local jealous vagabonds, uh, tipped off the authorities that he was a political insurgent. And it got him thrown uh, in prison on his wedding day uh, in France's version of Alcatraz. Um, There was a crooked judge involved who didn't want news to get out. And there's a whole bunch of things. But this relatively innocent guy whose station was on the rise, the day of his wedding, he's arrested and thrown into jail. And so things turn around for Edmund. Um, He befriends in prison a mad friar who tells him of a hidden treasure on the island of Monte Cristo. And so he escapes and he finds this hidden fortune and he sneaks his way into high society and spends a decade plotting an elaborate revenge scheme that takes nearly a decade to pull off. And at one point, caught up in the desire for revenge and retribution, Edmund Dantes says this, I, who have also been betrayed, assassinated, and cast into a tomb, I have emerged from that tomb by the grace of God, and I owe it to God to take my revenge. He has sent me for that purpose. Here I am. Now, isn't that delightful? Um, that Edmund Dantes thinks that his restoration... Um, is proof that God wants him to take revenge. And the rest of the book, right, the final two-thirds of The Count of Monte Cristo, is just him executing the revenge on the people who made his life miserable. Um, And so he does everything from um, destroying their families and ruining their political careers, making their sort of dirty laundry public, ruining their reputation, uh, stealing their wealth through complex financial schemes. Uh, Poison is involved, so is highway robbery. I mean, the Count of Monte Cristo is the story of a man who has a complete reversal of fortune and eventually gets revenge on those who did him wrong. And you see, in our reading today uh, from Genesis, um, Joseph has the opportunity to play the Count of Monte Cristo with the men who did him wrong too. And if you were listening last week, you know that our Genesis series is coming to a conclusion because Joseph has risen, as it were, from the dead. 
after being sold into slavery by his brothers and taken to Egypt, after being accused falsely of assaulting a woman of Egyptian nobility, after being forgotten and left to rot as an assistant to the regional manager of the very jail he was thrown into, uh, things have completely flipped for Joseph. He's now the viceroy of Egypt, the second in command only to Pharaoh. And he's in charge of all domestic uh, things across the Egyptian empire. He has a new family after his old one sold him into slavery. He has a new culture after his old culture rejected him. But by the grace of God, everything has ended well for Joseph after 13 years of total misery, uh, just like they did for Edmund and Count of Monte Cristo. But the reality is, is that just because Joseph has experienced a redemption of sorts with a new culture and a new family and a good job, it doesn't mean that everything has been healed and restored in his life. Uh, Despite the fact that he's been given this new lease on life, he's still the kid who was sold into slavery by his jealous brothers. And so if Joseph is truly going to be restored and healed, if he's going to be a, a experience a full, full resolution in his life, uh, the great family conflict of his childhood will need to be sort of healed and brought to closure. And so after 20 years of separation from his family, today, Joseph is going to be presented with the opportunity to find closure. Although he may be given the option and may be tempted to find closure like the Count of Monte Cristo. And that great famine that Joseph foresaw in Pharaoh's dreams has now arrived. And that famine hasn't just hit Egypt, it's hit the entire world, including his family back in Canaan. The text tells us that even at Joseph's uh, family back home uh, that he hasn't seen for 20 years, they were hit hard enough by the famine that it forced 10 of Joseph's brothers to head south into Egypt and to buy food. And that's where I want to pick up in our reading today. Here's what happens. Now, Joseph was governor over all the land, and he uh, was the one who sold all the people of their land. And um, he was the one who sold to all the people of the land. He sold them all the grain in the midst of the, pan, uh, the, the famine. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him and their faces to the ground. And Joseph saw his brothers and recognized him, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants, we we came to buy food. We are the sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. Now, I cannot imagine for the life of me what's going through Joseph's head at this moment. The brothers, the very brothers who sold him into slavery, they are now right in front of him, bowing to the ground and begging for food. And the flashback, of course, is to his early dreams from the beginning of Joseph's story. The dreams where his family were like stalks of wheat and they bowed to him, right? Those prophetic dreams from 30 years ago at this point are are fulfilling themselves right in front of Joseph's very eyes. I mean, what do you do? (laughs) This is not a situation I've been in. And um, I can't imagine the temptation that Joseph is experiencing to bring revenge on his brothers. And revenge certainly seems like it's on its mind when Joseph accuses him of being spies. And then after he accuses them from being spies, he locks them in jail for three days. 
Um, Joseph's immediate response um, to this whole arrival of his brothers is to throw them in jail. And he, um, in the meantime, given three days to think about things, he concocts a scheme that is designed to inflict psychological torture on his brothers. After three days in jail, he pulls them out of jail and he says this, Listen, I heard your story that you guys are our sons. They're all sons of a father, but one of your brothers is back home. Um, here's what's going to happen, brothers. I'm going to hold on to one of you. Um, they're going to be my slave. And uh, I will let them go if you go home and you come back with this other 11th brother you're telling me about. And if you come back with this brother, then I'll let him go. And so this is so, this is terrible. This is this is if you're one of Joseph's brothers, because there has been a time already where the group of boys were out in the field together and they came back without one of the boys that they went out as 12 and they came back as 11. And now what's going on, what, what Joseph says is, you're going to go home, you came here as 11, now you're going to go back home as 10 until I can verify that you're not spies. Now, of course, you know Joseph knows they're not spies, right? He knows this, but he's, he's inflicting this psychological torture of having to send them back home to their father, missing another son. And so it seems like, you know, revenge is on Joseph's mind. Or at least that he's looking to stick a stick, a, you know, twist the knife a little bit about the situation. But something happens in Joseph's mind and heart, um, where they the, something happens where, where where his attitude and his his heart they shift in the middle of this reading. You see, his brothers don't know that he speaks Hebrew. They think Joseph is Egyptian through and through, and so they quietly panic to one another about this deal that Joseph has given. And they say in Hebrew, thinking Joseph doesn't know anything, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now here comes the reckoning for his blood. And they did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he, Joseph, turned away from them. And he wept. Joseph wept. You see, the brothers, not knowing that Joseph is the man in control, think that their current predicament is revenge or karma or just desserts. You know, we sold our brother into slavery all those years ago and faked his death. And our brother begged us to stop and we didn't listen to him. And now here is this Egyptian viceroy demanding a second brother of us. And we're going to have to go home and tell our father. I told you we shouldn't have sold off uh, Joseph into slavery. It's all coming back on us, Al. It, this is all our fault. And Joseph, listening to this conversation, has to turn away and weep because these brothers are confessing their sins in his hearing, and they really do seem to be truly repentant. Something shifts in Joseph's attitude. The deal to keep one brother hostage as proof that this isn't a spy mission, that stays in place. And, you know, uh, Joseph doesn't mince any, um, he doesn't hold back. Uh, Simeon is the one who's bound. And so the brother Simeon of these uh, originally uh, 12 brothers, brother Simeon is bound in front of the rest of them and led away. They, they put Simeon in chains and let him go and haul him off. But then Joseph does something remarkable. Joseph fills their bags with grain uh, and he orders that their payment be placed in their bags, buried in the grain so they don't see it until much later. He gives them, he gives his brothers their money back. He gives them the grain for free. 
Yeah, right? The grain to feed his father, grain to feed his younger brother Benjamin, grain to feed this whole tribe, which we find out later is about 80 people. He gives them all grain for free. And I want to talk about this because it seems like a change of pace from everything we would expect of someone in a position like Joseph's. Because if we're coming to this text for the first time, we might expect Joseph to have his revenge. And up until this point, when he hears his brothers stressing and, and breaks down and weeps, uh, that's what it looks like he's going to get. Um, there was true injustice done to Joseph, and one might imagine that now that the power imbalance has shifted, um, Joseph would want to swiftly execute, pun very much intended, Joseph would want to swiftly execute judgment on his brothers and maybe go bring his father and youngest brother Benjamin down, and that would be the end of it. And, you know, if that's what Joseph did, maybe we wouldn't be so so taken aback by it. There's something universally cathartic about revenge. It's baked into our psyche. Um, in the newspapers of the day, the Count of Monte Cristo, when it was published in 1844, the newspapers of the day said that it was literally the only thing that people could talk about in the city of Paris for weeks. And it's not just our old you know, classic literature from English class. It's in our movies. Uh, think about the famous swordsman from The Princess Bride, whose only goal in life is to find the six-fingered man who killed his father and say to him, you can say it along with me if you want, Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Right? This whole uh, story of Indigo from The Princess Bride is a story of revenge. And when he finally does kill the six-fingered man, everyone watching in the movies is cheering him on. They're like, good for you. You got your revenge. But even more practically, you know, it's in our music. Uh, you know, what does Carrie Underwood do to the unfaithful man in her life? You, you remember the song, right? Before He Cheats. It was um, nominated for a Grammy. It's won multiple Grammy awards. I can't sing country music. I wish I could. But you know the song. It's it's a karaoke staple. What does she do? She, she says sings this. I dug my key into the side of his pretty little souped-up four-wheel drive, and I carved my name into his leather seats. I took a Louisville slugger to both headlights and I smashed a hole in all four tires, slashed a hole in all four tires. Maybe next time he'll think before he cheats. What's in our pop music? I mean, Carrie Underwood wins Grammys for that song. We all like revenge. We all like a good revenge story. But Joseph, in our reading, when it comes to getting revenge, even just even a just and rightly deserved revenge, um, like Joseph, we as Christians are slow to the take when it comes to, to rev questions of revenge. You, you see in Deuteronomy, there's this famous song that God gives to Moses. God says, "Let look, this people of Israel, they, they love to find and worship pagan gods, and that's not okay. So to help that from happening, to help keep that from happening, Moses, God says, teach them this song. And there's this long song in Genesis chapter 30, uh, De Deuteronomy chapter 32, it's in Hebrew, so I'm not going to sing that one to you either. I can't sing country. I can't sing Hebrew. But one of the key verses in this song is where God says, Vengeance is mine. And twice in the New Testament, the early Christians take this to mean that we don't take revenge for the wrongs that are done for us. We go the extra mile when the Roman centurion makes us carry his luggage. We offer the other cheek when we're smacked on our, our one cheek. We say, oh, you're going to smack my cheek? Here's the other one. Smack that one too. That's how much I don't care about your violence towards me. 
and we express our faith that God is going to sort out every single injustice done to us in a fair and proper manner so that we don't have to. If you've been sort of dealing with some of the kerygma material that I've been leaking out here and there, you know, one of the parts of the Christian gospel is that God is going to come and make the world right, and every single injustice that's ever been done is going to be dealt with by the impartial judge of heaven. So we don't sit around daydreaming about it revenge, theoretically. Maybe we do, but we certainly don't execute it. Um, because Christians, they don't take revenge, and I can explain to you why that is. Because if it's true that God made this world with a purpose, and that our actions against God's purposes are offenses against God himself, um, then we can't take revenge because God, well, you know, hasn't taken revenge on us. Here's an example that's kind of low stakes. Let's presuppose that someone cheats on their taxes, right? We might understand that someone who has cheated on their taxes owes restitution to the government. Um, they have not paid their their what is due and owed to them legally to the government. But that person also who cheated on their taxes has decreased the overall revenue of public works, which means that the person who cheated on their taxes has slighted their neighbors who paid their fair share into the public works as taxes as well. So it's not just the government uh, who's cheated out of this taxes, but the neighbor is also cheated as well because the neighbor has to pay more in taxes to cover the cheater's evasion. So, so not only do we, does a tax evader offer an apology or uh, is there needed to be justice between the government and the person, but also between the neighbors and the community and the person because it's impacted them too. And when someone cheats their neighbor and makes them suffer, that is ultimately the, not the vision for what God had in mind for this world. And so for the tax cheater, not only do they owe restitution and apology to the government, but they also owe an apology to their neighbors and they also owe an apology to God. And so, you know, when we think of sin in this nature that all of our sins carry within them some divine um, sort of connection to not just wronging this other person, but wronging God as well, um, things become really serious. It's like this with plenty of, of, of sins. Let's suggest, you know, heaven forbid that any of you cheat on your spouse, but if you cheat on your spouse, of course you owe your spouse an apology. But you also, you know, impact any kids in your family as well because that breaks apart the family. So you owe something to your kids for having an affair if that's what you do. And then not only that, but the person, your partner in the affair, maybe they had a spouse that you owe an apology to. And maybe they had kids and family that you are, are uh, impacting as well by this choice and you owe an apology to them. So again, this, this web of who is wronged when somebody sins, it expands out between just um, two people. Uh, it expands into whole communities. And then, of course, you take into account that God um, had intended in when he made the world that he intended for marriage to be a part of it. When you get to that part, you realize that lifelong covenants of fidelity um, that produce children, happiness, and are, are worshipful to God. That's part of what we're made to do as created beings. That goes back to Genesis, you know, chapter one about being fruitful and multiply. When you have an affair, it's an affront against uh, God too. And so the list of those wounded, it doesn't just reach on this horizontal plane whenever we do something wrong uh, against God's nature. It doesn't just impact our neighbors, but it impacts the heavens as well. You know, littering is an offense to God, right? It's not the careful stewardship of the world that God made for us. Stealing is an offense to God. 
It takes away the gift that God sovereignly gave someone else for their use. Dishonoring parents is an offense to God, right? It's a sign of resentment toward the loving and creative creative force that brought about your existence. Um, jealousy is an offense to God because it presupposes that God hasn't and won't give you everything you need to survive. Um, Psalm 51, David has this breakdown of a terrible thing that he did when he um, committed adultery and uh, had the husband murdered. And there's this interesting moment where David says, against you, Lord, and you only have I sinned. And it's like, no, David, that's not true. You've sinned against um, a woman. You've sinned against her husband and the family. And there's a lot of people you've sinned against uh, besides God. But what David is getting at in Psalm 51 is that the um, the consequences of when we miss the mark about what we're intended to be like on earth are so severe that they don't just ripple outward horizontally, but they ripple upward vertically to the heavens and that we owe God an apology as much as we owe anyone else an apology. Um, and so when you put that all together, what we find um, is a God who is quick to forgive anyone who acknowledges their faults, right? Uh, we could go on throughout the Ten Commandments. We could go out through the rest of the Bible. Um, but if you're a Christian, you've just got to come face to face to the fact that if God kept tally of all the ways we've offended against us, we'd just be on our knees begging for mercy. And so what if God wanted to take revenge on us for all the things that he's done? What if God wanted to take revenge on us? And when you, when you think about it like that, when you ask that question about what if God wanted to take revenge on us, things tend to open up when you get to that point because all of a sudden you, you switch from thinking that you don't know anyone anything to begging for mercy. And what we find, of course, is that God is quick to forgive anyone who acknowledges their faults in this, this manner. If vengeance is the Lord's, as the Bible says three times over, why does it seem like there hasn't been any vengeance directed at you and me for the things we've done wrong? We always joke, people joke about, you know, the lightning striking from heaven. Lightning has not struck from heaven for any of us in this room. And the answer is right here in our reading, I think, right? What happens when Joseph's brothers confess their wrongdoing uh, in front of their brother, even though their brother, they don't know that's what they're doing. What happens when Joseph's brothers confess their wrongdoing before Joseph? Um, Joseph's rage and his anger and his stern treatment of them turns to tears. How much more so will the God of the universe be moved to tears when we, when we, rebellious creatures that we are, confess our wrongdoings to him and ask for forgiveness? And so I'm, I'm putting all this together to say, friends, that we are not in the revenge business. We are in the forgiveness business. Not because our claims for vengeance aren't just, not because we are unconcerned with fairness, um, but because God has first forgiven us. We don't key up our cheating boyfriend's trucks and we don't track down our father's murderers for revenge because, well, there's all sorts of other awful stuff we've done in our lives and it's all been forgiven. It is the height of hypocrisy for a Christian to seek out revenge, plain and simple. Such matters are better left for the courtrooms of high heaven where the judge is impartial and the judgments are fair. Like Joseph in our story today, when the tables are turned, the Christian can actually become a conduit of something else um, other than just retribution and revenge. The Christian can become a conduit for mercy and forgiveness and reconciliation precisely because revenge and retribution are off the table. No, Edmond Dantes from the Count of Monte Cristo, God does not want you to be his agent of vengeance on the earth. 
Um, instead, there are some things that are heavenly and more beautiful that are available to anyone who has a true claim to injustice. And so let's keep an eye on Joseph, the vizier, and his friends. Uh, maybe there is a way to bring about that reconciliation and forgiveness that Christians are so well known for in this terrible situation. We, of course, with the benefit of hindsight, know that the death and resurrection of Jesus is the grand cosmic mechanism by which God takes away um, the, uh, the, universal, uh, f- uh, the universality of our sins. That the death and resurrection of Jesus is the core way by which God makes a way uh, for universal forgiveness and reconciliation. So maybe the death and resurrection of Joseph, after the 13 years of ministry he suffered in slavery, followed by his promotion to Grand Vizier, maybe the death and resurrection of Joseph can open up a pathway to reconciliation as well. We'll have to wait for that next week. In Jesus' name, Amen. Pennsylvania.